Welcome to the show, folks. This is Wrestling Changed My Life. Here we go. I get to I get to still um, have that wrestling bond with so many of the guys and, and gals in the UFC, which is really, really fun to, to still be a part of that community and see guys like Daniel Cormier and Chris Weidman and and, you know, th- these guys that I used to train with and compete against that uh, they're still out there living the dream. And, and I get to, you know, play, play a part of that, Kamar Usman uh, and the like. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the, the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps but it's it's five percent of the ingredient it pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort it humbled me taught me humility nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling i think it's the learning to adapt right you learn you learn how to adapt you learn how to solve problems you know if i look back my time i spent wrestling if it gave me one thing more than anything else it's mental toughness Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wrestling Change My Life podcast. My guest today is the director of sports nutrition for the UFC Performance Institute, Clint Wattenberg. Clint was also a two-time All-American for Big Red, Cornell University, back in the early 2000s. I love this conversation because Clint is on the bleeding edge of a lot of the research around nutrition, you know, physical workouts, weight cutting, Everything you can imagine when it comes to getting the body at peak shape and condition, Clint is highly focused on. And so there's a lot of parallels to what he's doing with some of the fighters at the UFCPI and what you can take away for your own wrestling life, if you're still competing or if your son still competing, that is. So enjoy the conversation, folks. Fan of the Week goes to the School of Grappling, our friend Andy. Please go to schoolgrappling.com. Check out what they're doing. Thank you so much for listening in. And folks, this episode's brought to you by the Wrestling Changed My Life online store. The graduate t-shirt is a hot item right now. You can go to store.wrestlingchangemylife.com to check out the graduate t-shirt. It's also a little cool here in Chicago this morning, despite being August 3rd, which reminds me of crew neck season. I love a good crew neck, and we have a couple awesome crew necks on the Wrestling Changed My Life online store. So if you want to support the show, you can do that by going to store.wrestlingchangemylife.com. And that's it, folks. Let's give it up for Clint Wattenberg. Peace. Okay, let's start at the very beginning, man. What's the youth wrestling scene like in Chico, California? All right. So I'll, uh, I'll start at the, very, the way, way back. Um, when I was growing up, I was like many kids who got you know, hooked on wrestling. I was like the most hyperactive kid going. And uh, my dad, actually, my mom and dad ran a police athletic league boxing gym. So when I was like three, I started begging them to, to let me box. <clears throat> and they, they made a deal with me when I could run a half a mile without stopping that, uh, that they would let me kind of start participating in you know, boxing as a sport. So my earliest memories are playing a game that my mom made up called Kick the Rock Down the Road. 
she'd kick it, I'd kick it, and you know, ploy to get me to keep running without stopping. And so, when I was four, I, I started boxing a little bit in Chico, California, uh, NorCal. It's about three hours from Reno, about three hours from the coast, three hours from Oregon, kind of in the center of the north state of California. And so we would travel, um, not, not just me, but my, my parents ran the, the entire gym. And so myself and other kids, uh, all the way up to adult um, boxers, would, would go to Reno for most of our competitions. And when I was four and five, I, I boxed. And when I look back at the old VHSs, it was you know, like a big pillow fight between kids. And every now and then somebody would get popped in the nose and start crying and the ref would come and like pat them on the back. But uh, when I was five, the state of Nevada um, cracked down on the regulation and um, made a rule, made a regulation that uh, said you, know, you can't box until you're 10 competitively. With what we know about head injury and little kids, it's probably a good thing. Um, but about that time, I got a flyer um, that went home with me from school. I was five, so I was maybe kindergarten um, and for, for youth wrestling. So I got um, sucked into that um, from the time I was Five, through the time I started high school, my dad ended up coaching all my teams. He was really active, really involved. Uh, dad never wrestled a day in his life until uh, I picked it up. And so really just built a, built the youth wrestling community, um, it, you know, really immersed myself. And then my family got really involved with it and, and took it on. And, um, you know, by the time I was in middle school, our, uh, you know, and in, in, in even um, older into the elementary school scene, um, we, we had really, really engaged in, in competitive teams and um, in, in a community that isn't really well known for wrestling. The, the North section within the state of California in the high school level when I came through, each section was given the number of state qualifiers based on their historical performance. Southern section um, would have eight qualifiers and North section would have one. So not particularly well known for our, our wrestling, um, but we would have some good individuals. And we had a number of D1 wrestlers that came through in, in my era. And then um, Derek Moore um, was our first ever state or uh, NCAA champion from um, UC Davis. And he was from our section. So is the whole upper, cause I used to live in San Francisco for five years. Yep. And I actually met one of my girlfriends at Chico on spring break. My buddy, we went out there on spring break and we, we went to the zoo and it was crazy um, at Chico state. Yep. Um, but like that's even North of Chico though, there's like four hours of California left before you get to Oregon, you know? So it was like that whole area, the North section for state. Yeah. So we, we went pretty high. There is the North coast, which went down to uh, that included uh, some really good wrestling down the coast. Um, the Stephen Abbas was, was from the North coast section. Sac Joaquin is, is the Sacramento area. That's this really strong. Um, mm -hmm. and then, you know, central, which is Fresno, San Jose area, really, really strong. Um, but the, the North section, which is, you know, kind of North of Sacramento, um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely not a, a population hub for one, but uh, a lot of good small schools that, um, that would, you know, churn out some good wrestlers but not necessarily at the same same level as the the bigger sections and was aaron Rodgers rolling around chico at this time or he already left by then man yeah so i went to high school at pleasant valley high school chico's a, a reasonably big town about a hundred thousand two big high schools chico high school and pleasant valley high school i went to pleasant valley i graduated the year before aaron Rodgers um came to pleasant valley so i i like to think i set the stage for him but uh <laughs> the, the first time i ever heard of aaron Rodgers. um was I was a division one all American at Cornell University. 
and um, obviously we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about yeah. my experience there. But I, I got nominated for uh, like a athlete of the year award um, for Chico or Butte County or, or something locally. And I lost it to some junior college football player. And I was so pissed. Like how is division one wrestle that this isn't, this isn't right. Um, people have, you know, total, um, you know, football fever. And then I kind of learned, he said every junior college record. And then, you know, he became the, the all pro and hall of famer that he is now. But still though, I'm with you, man. That's uh division one all American at the collegiate wrestling level. It doesn't get any tougher than that, but I get, I get what they're saying. Um, so how did, uh, you know, California kid, I mean, Cornell had Travis Lee from Hawaii. So there's that connection on the West coast a little bit, but like, how was the, how the Rob Cole clan come into your picture? So as I was making my way through, you know, my junior senior, um, of high school, I was, you know, mostly focused on, on the, the wrestling component through my recruiting, you know, really before I got into the recruiting process, I wasn't thinking as much academically, obviously academics was really important to me, but, um, you know, young, young kid, junior in high school, really thinking about my wrestling first. And it was before Ivy league wrestling was to a, a at least an awareness for me, um, but I think that it's clearly at a different level now where the whole country kind of knows that you can, you can, you know, have your cake and eat it too with, with mm-hmm. Ivy league wrestling. But for me, um, the, the majority of the schools that recruited me ended up being Ivy league. And now that I know, now that I know what I know about Ivy league recruiting is these guys hit the ground and, and it is a tireless effort to figure out who, who fits into this really unique niche of student athlete and, and as well as the financial aid component. And I, I was a really good fit for, for Ivy league for a number of reasons. My, my dad had recently um, gone back to school and, and, and had started his own business. He, he had been a, a truck driver and went back to school, uh, went to law, night law school when I was in middle school and high school and had recently passed the bar and had his own um, legal firm. And so was really making no money. So I, I, I was a great candidate for, for need-based financial aid. Um, and, and had, uh, you know, I was a strong student athlete in high school. Um, and so I got recruited by a number of Ivy League institutions, um, Stanford as well. And, and, and uh, UC Davis was, was one that was close to home. And um, I, I wanted to make sure that I kept that um, on the radar and, and had good relationships with the coaches there. Um, but Cornell was just the perfect fit. I, I connected with the coaching staff really well. At the time, it was Coach Cole and Tom Shiflett, who ended up being the most impactful coach that I had through my, my wrestling career. I, I would say for, for the total of my career, he was probably the most impactful in, in really helping me transition to the college style and the college level and, and the mindset there. Um, but it, it was great. We were a, a, a you know, consistently top 25 team that seemed to underperform every year. We went five years without having an All-American before Jim Stanek broke through in 2001. So we, we, were, we were at that perfect kind of place for me where I was a, a strong high school wrestler, but by no means a blue chipper. I had a lot of developing to do. Um, I had a lot of physical maturing to do. I, I actually graduated high school, uh, one, 152 pounder without cutting a ton of weight and um, was the same height as I am now today. So I, I filled out, gained 45 pounds in college, um, went up two weight classes. And, and you know, it, it, I, I had a, 
a career not unlike a lot of others where, you know, weight cutting and, and some of those, those strains really uh, had a, a hard impact on my, on my uh, performance and, and I had to learn some lessons through that process. But um, really, it was a perfect, perfect program fit for me. Um, academically, I found the nutritional sciences and exercise physiology um, uh, fields, and, and it's really you know, done me well in, in the development of, of my career and my ability to, to stay connected to the sport of wrestling and, and combat sports in general. Yeah, and we'll get to it, but you are the director of, was it Sports Nutrition for the UFC Performance Institute? Sports. Yeah, te te yeah, technically the director of performance nutrition is what it's called. Perfect. Okay. And so did you have a lot of battles with weight cutting and it really took it hard over the years, which led you down this path? So weight cutting is endemic to any sport where you have to make weight, right? You're, there's always going to be that need to, to try to be competitive or to, or to reduce a competitive disadvantage or a perception of it. And I, you know, I, I consider myself, um, you know, pretty dedicated to, to trying to learn and trying to apply the, the science of what I was learning throughout the process. And this was, you know, high school, college, um, but I, I made, I made all the same mistakes as everybody else. And, and in college in particular, I was studying nutritional sciences, um, which um, for those that may not be as, as aware of, of the kind of the academic and the, the curriculum requirements for that is, is pretty much the, the number one pre-med pathway for, for student athlete or for students who are becoming a, a doctor that are at Cornell. So it's a huge medical and, you know, physiologically focused uh, major and really on the, the cellular mechanistic levels. Um, and so for me, as I'm trying to apply the science of, of biochemistry in the human body to performance and specifically to weight making and to performance on the wrestling mat. It was a really challenging application of science. And so I, I did struggle. I, I, I hit my second you know, kind of round of puberty. I got a lot thicker. I got a lot stronger. Um, like I said, I gained about 45 pounds in my college career. Um, and, and really, I grew out of a weight class. I, I dealt with a lot of injuries. I had a catastrophic knee injury my, my second year at Cornell. I ended up being there for five years. I had a medical uh, red shirt from that. Um, and I ended up um, coming back um, after the knee injury into a weight class that was too, too small. Um, I stayed at 165. Really oh struggled. my God. Yeah, really struggled to, to, to make weight. I was you know, in the 180, mid, mid 180s, 185 over the summer and, and really trained myself down. and did it as well as I could, but it just wasn't, it wasn't the right fit. And I was doing things that as I look back are pretty counter to what I would recommend today. And, and that's just the, the process of learning through the challenges that I've dealt with. Um, and so after 2001, which is, I, I came back after my ACL, LCL, PCL injury that I did at the Midlands in 2000, um, came back, um, was ranked as high as, you know, top 10 in the country. Um, my, uh, my, I guess, redshirt sophomore year, if you want to call it that, um, and then just slowly faded away. Um, we, it was when we drew weights for dual meets that we drew my weight like three, three matches oh. in a row, had a number of tough, tough losses, some injuries, and was seated number one at the EIWA championships and ended up not qualifying for nationals. So that was kind of like my low point um, uh, of, of my collegiate career and had to go back to the drawing board and, you know, took a week off and then, you know, started to get focused on the process of getting my body down and thinner. And, and then I had a meeting with my coaches, uh, coach Cole and coach Shifflett and 
thankfully, um, we came to the consensus, like, let's get big and strong and get up to 184. Because um, we had a returning All-American, my training partner, Jim Stanick, uh, was our first All-American in five or six years. So he'd kind of earned the spot at 174. So I, I leapfrogged him, went up to 184, and, uh, and really have had all my successes competitively up at that 184 in college and then 84 kilo, 185 uh, internationally. What a relief it must have been to have him say that. Like, I mean, because you were you after the EIWAs, you're down, feeling, you know, feeling bad, obviously, and you were thinking, start shrinking your body down. But they were saying the opposite. Thank God. Yeah, and and what that ended up being is is really a blueprint for our success over the next decade. Um, Jim Stanick, actually, I had beaten him out for the spot the year before. He went up, was all American at 174. I ended up going up two weights. Um, had all, you know, much more success in my, in my career. Travis Lee ended up going up and winning a national title. Dustin Minotti, Joe Mazurko, um, Jerry Rinaldi. These are old school Josh names. Arnone, all, all of our athletes, Jordan Lean went up to win a national title. Pretty much all of, all of our athletes who we, we pushed and, and we had a really, really amazing track record of, of athletes going up and having as much or more success up a weight class and, and really focusing on, on the ability to be resilient, to train throughout the season, continue to get better um, rather than just, you know, wither away through the college wrestling season, which is hard enough as it is. And, and when you're, when you're on a chronic diet, that, that just makes it so much worse. And had, that's what I love about Cornell is that they, and specifically coach Cole, he's not afraid to go against the norm and change things. I mean, mm. now it's well-documented. They don't do morning workouts because they had uh, their director of sleep or the professor of sleep at the college spoke to the spoke to Rob Cole and he started to rethink things. So they don't do that 6am workout. Had that happened yet? Or were you guys still doing the morning workouts when you were there? Uh, I was right in the middle of the transition between old school and new school. And we had about three or four years where we were as a team performing incredibly well in November, December, top 10, top 15 rankings, both individually and as, as well as the team. And then we would, not have an All-American and be 30th in the country with, you know, five team points at, you know, come NCAA time. And it mm. was just a chronic overuse, overtraining. And, and really that was the nature of, of collegiate wrestling at the time. And what I credit Coach Cole and Coach Shiflett and, and our, our um, who turned out to, to inherit and, and to be a really critical component of our strength and conditioning program, Tom Dillaplane, was to rethink how we trained as, to, as, as an Ivy League student athlete. And when you're at a, at a school that is maybe not quite as academically rigorous, you could, you could get away with some of these more, um, I guess, um, stressful training regimens and training times that you can you can support recovery in different ways in those instances. But when you're getting limited sleep and you're having study sessions and and, and lab reports and things that are, are keeping athletes up um, and limiting sleep as well as just the generalized stress that these athletes, the student athletes at Cornell and um, and, and, and other academic institutions are, are experiencing, you you just cannot recover and and and. and manage the workload, the systemic workload um, with those morning training sessions. So we really revamped, we revamped preseason, we revamped uh, winter session where we would, you know, historically just get beat down over and over and over and, and really use opportunities for recovery um, and, and really be thoughtful about our approach to peaking come 
come to March. And I would say between the years of 2005 and, you know, and, and to today, we've had some of the most remarkable turn, you know, season turnarounds or just abilities for our team to show up come championship time. And, and I, I attribute that a lot to the, the focus on, um, on, on, well, individualizing the training plan, which is something that Rob does, Coach Cole does as well as anybody else in the country, I would say. And secondly, to, to just thinking about the long view and not trying to, to get peak performances in any particular early season tournament or, or dual meet. And really, it could look like training through, but it's really just recognizing that the entire season is, is preparation for, you know, our, our championship events in um, EWAs and then the NCAA tournament. Yeah, and you look at during that from 2005 through now, 15-year period, Cornell has been top three consistent programs, top two consistent programs. And like, if someone would have told Rob Cole that, or if Rob Cole would have told someone that in 1991, they would have said, you're out of your freaking mind that you, Ohio State, Penn State, would be some of the most consistent programs. But it's true. I mean, that what they've done is amazing. And some of the athletes who come through there are the most exciting wrestlers over the past 15 years with Dake and Yanni and um, – you know, yourself, Gabe Dean. It's just, it's so fun to watch. What changed in the preseason? I'm curious about that part. How was it before and what was it after? A lot of it, and, and again, I'll, I'll keep it as simple as I can, but it, it's really about, you know, supporting the gains that we, we, we gained through the summer, building a training base, but not just beating people down, not not just driving shin splints and, and creating uh, muscle height, muscle loss that, that was gained over the summer for those that, that really needed it, treating heavyweights a little bit different, you know, those that, that we need to keep big. And, and again, it's about recognizing that we're not, we're not runners. We, we don't need to necessarily be, be training to, to run five or 10 Ks and, and, and to be, just be strategic with things. Surely we need to, you know, push ourselves mentally and emotionally and, and, and build some team, uh, team building, but it, it doesn't just need to be this, um, you know, this boot camp, which I think it, it historically had been. Yeah. Um, and, and using it a, as an opportunity to, to build some, some, um, you know, some, some base physiology, some base skill work. Um, but just to, to keep it as simple as possible. I know a big, a big step was to, uh, to allow, um, you know, some, some captain's practices and some things that allowed us to do some, um, some leadership development on the team building side, but also some skill development that um, would replace some of the, the overuse type stuff. And, um, and I, I think the main thing is just to, to be thoughtful about the approach. And one thing that, that I learned and I, I've been really fortunate within my tenure with the program, and I've, I've kind of moved on now um, as I've moved to Las Vegas. But I, I was a student athlete. I was a, an assistant wrestling coach. I was, a, you know, helped on the strength and conditioning side, and I was a sports dietitian. So I had a lot of different roles with the team. But one thing that, that I recognize is, you know, the teams that look undertrained come March are generally the ones that are overtrained. Um, you can you can easily add training volume, but it's really hard to pull back once once your guys are overtrained. And so, being able to work that you know, walk that fine line through the season, and then be be able to add load when you need it, and then pull back for recovery is a really critical thing. And so, would you guys? It's interesting that the change at Cornell kind of happened maybe five to ten years earlier than the UFC chain change in training too. Like you used to see like UFC camps doing that. And there just seems to be a change there as well. Now. Um, have you seen that just in your time working with the UFC? 
Yeah, so interestingly, the the UFC Performance Institute opened in May of 2017. So we are nearing our three-year anniversary of Open the Doors. The first year, we, you know, largely was around just trying to make whatever impact we can, try to create some um, connect, connections within the community. But there's, you know, a fair amount of cynicism because the athletes and the um, kind of the leadership in, in the company had historically had a pretty combative relationship as the, the main interactions between company and athlete was, was really around contract negotiations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, my shirt still says UFC on it and I work for the UFC and that's where my paycheck comes from. But the UFC performance Institute is a wholly distinct part of the company where we have um, safeguards in place for, uh, you know, confidential confidentiality of information um, and things of that nature. So we, we truly are athlete centered. And so over the last 18 months, I would say we have taken incredible, incredible um, bounds in terms of athlete engagement and being able to work to address some of the cult, you know, systemic cultural issues. Big part of that is this, this fight camp mindset where athletes may only be locked in to a fight for eight weeks and the rest of the year, they're just kind of like out floating around and not really preparing. Um, building in that 52 week fight camp where athletes are focused on performance not locked in but you know using strategic um, tactics around nutrition around training around recovery around periodization all year round and 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 treating it as a professional lifestyle this is you know it's, it's a hard thing because any, a UFC athlete could take a fight any any day of the year versus you know any of the other professional sports. They have a three month season or a four month four month season where they know they're locked in. You got another month of postseason. Then the rest of the year they're off recovering. They're off spending time with family, etc. Our guys and gals are are really chronically in it, and so it, it, it takes some 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 work. But that you know professionalizing of the lifestyle is a big part of it, and um, a big a big thing that. UFC athletes, and, and I'm sure most wrestlers that, uh, that might hear this, this will resonate as well, is very, very black and white thinkers. They're either on or they're off. And what, we try, what I try to talk to my athletes about is not being an on and off switch where you're kind of like locked in 100%, everything's clean, everything's focused, everything's overtraining, or you're out and you're just partying all the time or, or just not focused on, on anything. It's being more on a dimmer switch. Instead of an on-off switch, we want to be on a dimmer. Let's slide that towards preparation and a general prep. You know, eight weeks is not enough to, to build these physiological developments that we need. So let's spend – four weeks or six weeks on some physiological adaptations, but it doesn't have to be hundred percent in fight camp where you're training 15 times a week. Mm-hmm. So that's the type of, of language and focus that we're working on. And my, my domain is nutrition and I have an exercise physiology background that I got my master's in exercise physiology from Ithaca college. And so for me, it's two sides of the exact same training coin, the recovery coin, an athlete is a human being and we need to support the nutrition, the nourishment, which is really a, a foundational component of those adaptations but we need to keep in mind all of the training loads, all the recovery demands, all of the human demands that those athletes are experiencing so that we can have specific targeted adaptations. And that's what we're looking for is adaptation that they could take into the, into the, the octagon or onto the wrestling mat or whatever it may be. And so um, the, the biggest thing is really being able to, to work together as a cohesive team so that each of us can, can influence an athlete um, for this, you know, targeted adaptation that leads to championship and world-class performances. And is there, I know everything's very individualized in terms of 
diet and, and nutrition. Are there any general principles, though, that may be applicable to some of the high school and collegiate wrestlers who are listening right now in terms of if they're in that four to eight week window out from the nationals or the state tournament, any general principles around um, things that you've researched that you found? So the, the biggest thing, and I think the biggest takeaway just in terms of the work that we're doing is we're very personalized. And so just, you know, reading something that, that Jordan Burroughs does or Kyle Dake or Kyle Snyder doesn't, you know, certainly these are great athletes that we should all aspire to, to be able to perform as well on the mat and, and to, you know, to be as, as I guess, relevant to the sport community because they're all great ambassadors for the sport. But we need to take that with a grain of salt and every, every paradigm of performance really needs to be personalized. Um, just because they're doing a certain strength and conditioning program or a nutrition plan doesn't mean that it applies to me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we really need to apply things to our own physiological, personal, social demands. A high school athlete has way different, you know, um, constraints to their training and performance than a, a senior Olympic athlete or a UFC athlete. Um, my guys and gals, you know, they, they live to train and recover. Um, versus a, a student athlete has very, very different demands. So the first thing is make sure that whatever you're, you're consuming, uh, that you're able to digest and, and translate that to what you're looking for. The next thing that I would suggest is we always want to think about adaptation. Adaptation is what we take onto the mat or into the, into the octagon. And so what are you doing to support that adaptation? A great example is if some of my athletes might be doing fasted training, which you know, I, I generally recommend against in a, in a heavy, heavy training loaded camp um, and, and in season where athletes are really struggling with recovery, I would highly discourage it, but they might be going into their hardest session of the day fasted or, or undernourished. And what that does is it limits the ability to train at a high, at the intensities that we're looking for and it limits the ability to adapt to the training session physiological focus. And so that limits our capacity to improve in the way that we're looking for. I always, I'd always heard that, you know, we got to be able to um, train and fuel in a way that, um, that, so we don't waste workouts, but that was a little bit hard for me to uh, conceptualize. The way that I, I can better conceptualize it is if I'm doing things that really limit my ability to adapt to that performance that we're trying to get, then why not adjust that so that everything could be going in the same direction for performance? Um, that could be with high intensity training, can be with wrestling training, it could be with whatever it might be, but really trying to think about what things can I do on the stimulus side? That could be food, it could be training, it could be you know, strength and conditioning, but is everything going in the same direction? Because a lot of times we're either undermining training or overdoing training. And this could be the case when I'm doing really hard resistance work in my, my wrestling session. And then I'm doing not complimentary, but, but redundant training in the weight room. And that's just creating overuse injuries and overtraining versus doing something that might be complimentary and support recovery or support a different energy system that, that we might need to build out for um, a performance come February or March. And so is it something where you should be eating a certain type of food, like a, a protein or a carb before a workout? Or is it, again, just so specific, you can't even make any of those general guidelines like that? So yeah, great, great kind of segue in terms of feeding specifics and, and my overall and my program is feeding philosophy. And it's really about fueling for each individual's specific and personal needs, right? If somebody has a religious or a, a 
kind of limitation or sure. a food intolerance and obviously things have to adjust but our, our overall our overall philosophy is we want to be as as flexible as we need to to support that training adaptation that said um, there are there is really no specific dogma that we're using. So a lot of our feeding initiatives may, may be low carb or they may be high carb or it's, it's, it, it's not, um, we're not prescribing to one specific you know, named diet, but as our athletes are, are training at the highest intensity, you, you can't really have those consistent training demands and the recovery that comes from it without a hard, high carb um, kind of fueling status going into those training sessions. And so what we really are looking at is uh, a specific training session in the four hours that precedes it. That's really the training, the fueling window that we look at. If you're doing a high intensity and for, for wrestlers, that's, that's your daily practice, right? Usually it's three or four in the afternoon and that's when you get out, out of school and then you go either kick butt or get your butt kicked for two hours. And, and that's the hardest training that, you know, we've ever done in our whole lives for a lot of us. And that really requires uh, the, the high carbohydrate meal and or snack to support that. Other training demands may be a little bit lower intensity and that might be technique and tactics or it might be some low intensity work that's, that's you know, aerobic energy system based. And those we, we can do on, on lower carbohydrate feeding status, but it really depends on you know, how is the recovery going? What are the overall energy needs? What are our growth needs for our younger athletes? And for, for somebody in middle school or high school, I, I'm, I'm really hesitant to, to really drive home any sort of a low carb or a low energy diet and really would support fueling for, for the specific work that needs to be done and, and to, to be um, more focused on, on making sure you have enough rather than cutting back, especially um, in a general training um, kind of phase. Um, but to answer your question, we really want to look at the specific training um, session and the three, you know, three to four hours preceding it as a way to fuel up for that specific session. And if we're doing that, what you said that, you know, four hours out, you need a high carb diet to fuel the workout. What foods constitute that? Yeah. And, and great, great question. And having specifics is really helpful. For our high carbohydrate options, um, we're looking at complex carbohydrates. When, when I say carbohydrates, I mean starchy carbs, not some of the more rapidly absorbed carbohydrates that would be obviously processed sugar and fruits and white breads, but looking for more of the complex carbohydrates. Um, this is going to be our breads, pasta, rice, grains, potatoes. Those are going to be the, the main sources of our complex carbohydrates. Those are going to be really our, our most diverse energy source for an athlete. Um, I like to think of our metabolism and our, our energy demands as we truly are a combustion engine, right? We take food, we burn it up, we give off heat and we do work just like an engine does. Mm -hmm. And so our most diverse energy source is going to be that complex carbohydrate. It's like throwing a log on the fire. It's going to burn hot. It's going to burn for a couple hours. It gives us two hours or so worth of energy. Um, and, and it's going to, and it, it's going to be a really great, diverse energy source on the other end of the spectrum is think about fats fats are in essence a really good energy source as well um, they're going to be slow burning they're going to be like coal coal burns for hours say five hours you throw coal coal on a fire on on a campfire you know that's going to burn for five hours it's hot it gives off heat but if you spread it out you can actually walk on it really fast 
Um, and so it, it's a really slow burning. And that's really what fats can do. It can be a really great energy source to fuel our basal metabolism. So kind of more at rest or, or during recovery phases, as well as in lower, just generally lower intensity training phases of the day or, or periods of, of your training block. So you can sleep on a low carb diet, if, especially if calories need to be managed and we're in season. Most of my athletes are sleeping low carb, low glycogen, and that has some benefits on, on the hormonal um, and, and the energy system adaptations as well. Um, so fat is that long, slow burning energy source. And on the other end of the spectrum, you think about easily digested sugars, carb, you know, quick burning carbohydrates. This could be, like I said, processed sugar that you might get in a Coke or, or a soda, um, all, all the way to more natural, quick absorbing forms of carbohydrates like your, um, like your fruit or honey or, or some of those naturally sweet foods. Those are going to create a spike of energy and, and a really quick energy burst, more like throwing gasoline on a fire. And there's a, there's, there's a time and a place where that's really good. Right before bed may not be the time. Um, right before you go in and doing some, some cardio work may not be the time. But right before, during, or after really hard training sessions is, is a really beneficial impact of quick absorbing high carbohydrate foods that are going to spike blood sugar and insulin. Insulin is an anabolic hormone. And so post-training has an anabolic effect on your muscle tissue for repairing not only glycogen that you store in muscle, but also the, the muscle protein synthesis and repairing the muscle that was damaged during training. Alternatively, if you have it during a, a restful period and you have a lot of sugar when you're not actually burning energy and you don't need to support that recovery process, you spike blood sugar, you spike insulin in, insulin then serves as an anabolic hormone for adipose tissue. And so that's where you are, are not you're not providing the nutrients that are supporting um, what you need at that moment in time. And that's where we want to think about providing those energy sources in concert with whatever the training demand is, but also thinking about what is the impact on blood sugar and how does that support what our, our needs are at that moment in time. Man, there's just so much that goes into it. And you think back to I'm thinking back to when I was in high school, cutting some weight and not a lot, but you know, maybe six, eight pounds, but mm -hmm. going into practice at three o'clock, just absolutely no energy starved to the gills, you know, mm -hmm. like trying to starve it off. It's just amazing how counterintuitive that all is to, to, to performance optimization, you know? Yeah. And, and really what we're trying to do, and it's a little bit, um, it's a unique application of sports science and within the sports nutrition profession, I've been fortunate to be on the cutting edge because of my background as a wrestler, as a coach, and then within the science community uh, to, to drive a lot of the innovation around performance nutrition for our weight class and combat sports. And it, it's, it's a, a little bit counterintuitive for a lot of the science professionals because we are supporting athletes to do things that are suboptimal in many ways, right? Dehydrating yourself is not a performance metric, right? That's not something that our soccer teams are doing to elicit performance, but making weight is a necessary part of our process. So what we're trying to do is almost flip performance on its head and within weight cutting and making weight. And, and I, I try to use kind of the, the, the terminology of weight making versus weight cutting as much as I can, but within that weight making process, we're trying to do it as efficiently as consistently and with the least amount of impact on performance as we possibly can. Mm. The weigh-in regulations in high school and college wrestling are very different than what they are in the UFC. UFC, they weigh in 30 plus hours before competition. So it's like 
so barbaric and old school. And still what we're trying to do is to minimize the impact on performance, not only for this fight or for this upcoming match, but for the rest of the season. Because if you have a horrible weight cut early in the wrestling season, that's going to impact you the entire rest of the season. And so we're trying to be as efficient and consistent with our efforts as we can. And what we're trying to do is to be as nourished as long as we can. So we have the minimal impact on metabolism and on our, our fluid balance and our electrolyte management. And so we're trying to stay as nourished as we can, use nutritional tactics and strategies to pull non-essential body weight off and then put it back on as quickly as we can so that we can, we can support the healthfulness of the athlete and the, in, on the physiology, but also the psychology as well. Um, as any of us who have got weight know, it's, it's just as much mental as it is physical. Um, the, the three main areas that, that we look to pull non-essential body weight from are going to be, first and foremost, the easiest thing to cut is going to be muscle and liver glycogen. That's how we store carbohydrates in the body. So through just, phys- just regular training, we're going to burn glycogen. Glycogen binds water, and a lot of the, the water weight that we lose through a training session is actually from bound muscle glycogen in the water that is associated with it. So towards the end of, of our training block before weigh-in we just don't replete those carbohydrates after a hard training and then we essentially have depleted the glycogen source mm-hmm. the second um, source of non-essential body weight is going to be fiber dietary fiber can be very very heavy in the gut and this is those two things are what i got exactly wrong when i was a student athlete at cornell i the day before weigh-ins i'd go eat a bunch of rice and broccoli because rice is energy and broccoli is healthy right or salad well fiber is incredibly heavy and it provides no energy to do the work that we're trying to do fiber in the gut also pulls water because it requires water to process through the gut so think about getting 500 calories of nutrients from peanut butter it's a, it's less than a quarter of a pound from greens or from broccoli or from from some other green source of vegetation it's going to be over three pounds to get 500 calories so what we want to do is to eliminate any fiber from the gut that weighs us down on the scale but doesn't give us energy doesn't preserve muscle all it does is 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 makes a makes us lose additional weight that's going to really take it out of our our energy and from our our skeletal muscle system and so we want to eliminate that for you know, a, a couple days and then put it back in and that those two days will not dysregulate, will not disrupt your, your digestive system and process as long as you're, you're getting the nutrients in between those sessions as much as you need to. The third area is going to be just non-essential fluid, eliminating sodium for a few days. Um, and, and we use what we call a water, uh, a water load process that upregulates fluid processing by your kidneys and then allows you to, to flush out non-essential water while still maintaining essential electrolytes and fluid balance for your physiological and your, and your healthful state, but allowing you to flush out what, what is non-essential. So those are the three main areas that we're looking to eliminate. And then once you weigh in, depending on how much time you have between weigh-in and competition, really dictates how extensive of that depletion process that you go through and then you replete whatever you took out and uh and you you know as strategically as you can because of the body's limitations around carbohydrate and electrolyte tolerance um, when you're rehydrating and refeeding but being really strategic around that and then you're able to compete essentially in the same body that you trained in because you just eliminated and put back on all of the uh, the nutrients that, that you need Man, you think about how different it is for the Olympics where it's two-day weigh-ins, hour weigh-in, no allowance versus some of the stuff you're talking about. It, it's, um, 
it's good that wrestling's that far advanced to limit the weight cutting, but it's like, man, it puts a strain on the body for sure. Yeah, and, and those Olympic wrestlers had to make a really big transition too because it was day before weigh-ins all the way through 2016, I believe, and then they had to make a transition over to the, the two-day, one-hour weigh-in and having to navigate some of the, the old school with, with some of the, the new demands was, was no small task. And I know that, that they've been working hard with, um, you know, within their teams and, and the sports dietitian at the USOC is a good friend of mine. Uh, Rob Skinner, I know, has been working with a lot of them on, on some of those tactics. So definitely it's always a, always a challenge to apply the current weigh-in regulations and the best practices to it. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you think about Russia and their dominance, they don't cut a lot of weight over there. And so they, maybe there's something to that. Um, I hope there's less and less weight cutting over the years, um, as we all do, right? It's just, I think it's just sure. people perform better. Um, so, well, one of the things we usually wind down with is how did wrestling change your life? But I'd rather ask you, you mentioned the assistant coach at Cornell was a big impact in your life. What was his name? Tom Shiflett. Tom Shiflett. Let's just, we can wind down with that. I mean, what, what did he, what impact did he make on your life or how did he change your life that still you carry with you to this day? Yeah, that, that's a great, that's a great question. Great um, kind of line of, of thinking. Making a transition to division one wrestling, I think for almost everybody who's not named Johnny or, or, or the like is an incredible transition just in terms of the competitiveness. Uh, a lot of it is mindset and just resilience to setback. And I had, you know, my, my fair share of setback and a lot of them, um, some were performance, some were, were weight nutrition related, as I talked about, and a lot of it was injury related and, and having somebody who, who can help you to process that, help you to, to keep, keep your eye, uh, keep your mind focused on, on what's important through that process, I think is really important. And, and that's, that's something that Tom was able to really help me with. And like I said, it, it was quite the balance of, of personalities and, and support that I had. Um, but, but Coach Schiffler really helped me to make that transition to the, the collegiate wrestling level. And, um, and, and I think, like I said, a, a lot of it is having somebody to challenge you, but also to, to be there for you as you experience setback. Um, I, I've heard some recent interviews with, uh, with Yanni and Coach Gray, and that, that, that kind of resonates with me in that front is just having, having that person that not only believes in you, but is really going to challenge you. And, and I think that's what, what Coach Schiffler did a lot for me. And I have some really distinct memories of, um, you know, being, um, being a little bit frustrated or overwhelmed with that transition my first year or two um, and, and him being there to, to, to keep my mind right. And then um, post-injury when I had that, you know, terrible uh, ACL, LCL, PCL injury and, and, and Tom being there to, to kind of push me and help me make those transitions and the steps uh, back to, to being able to step on the mat and contribute and, and being able to elevate my, my wrestling performance and my wrestling mindset um, to be able to compete at, at the highest level that I was able to. Well, especially when you're in the, the throes of battle like that, you know, it takes, it takes a special bond and, and caring about the person outside of just the wrestling life to, to make that connection and, and really kind of tap into that. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the, the title of your podcast and just the theme of, of wrestling changed my life is really such a profound one. And, and I'm, I'm really happy to have this conversation. And 
I've, I've always wanted to give back and be able to, to be part of the wrestling community. And, and like I said, I, I've been so fortunate within the Cornell community, um, being able to support the, the Cornell wrestling, but also youth wrestling, both at the uh, kind of club level and, and, and at the organizational level. And now being able to coach my two little kids, I have a eight year old daughter and a five year old son who are both uh, enamored with wrestling. We had a great little, uh, you know, quite developmental wrestling uh, season and wrestling club here in Las Vegas and, and it's you know really thriving and we're here home at the during the quarantine and um, my kids are, are trying to pin me every day so I, I, <laughs> I sucked it up and bought a wrestling map but unfortunately everybody else in the country is now too so um, but can't can't wait to get my garage little wrestling room going and, and um, I'm just really excited to you know continue to be part of the wrestling community. Well it's an honor to have you on here and once I heard that you were at the USCPI I was like yeah, that's so awesome that our wrestlers up there and really you know, keeping it going for us. And I see the Cornell poster in the background, man. So you're a, you're yep. a Cornelian um, and really appreciate your time today. Yep. <laughs> yep. There it is, man. I got the grandpa tattoo here with the Cornell on the bicep, but yeah, it's, it's, it's in my blood and, and you know, I'm, I'm loving it and living it. And I get to, I get to still um, have that wrestling bond with so many of the guys and, and gals in the UFC, which is really, really fun to, to still be a part of that community and see guys like Daniel Cormier and Chris Weidman. And, and, you know, th these guys that I used to train with and compete against that uh, they're still out there living the dream. And, and I get to, you know, play, play a part of that Kamar Usman uh, and the like, um, so it's, it's really fun to be able to, to still be part of it. I bet, man. Well, I appreciate you making the time, man. Best of luck with your kids journey through the sport and wish you nothing but the best. Thanks a lot. Take care. Look forward to, uh, to staying uh, in contact and following the podcast. Absolutely, man. Take care. And all great things must come to an end. If you want to hear more from the podcast, text wrestle to five, 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 eight, eight, eight. That's wrestle to five, 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 eight, eight, eight. You can also find us on Instagram, Wrestling Changed My Life, Twitter, Ryan underscore N underscore Warner, as well as our website, WrestlingChangedMyLife.com. Take care, y'all.